when we're talking about processing these foods, the hardest part for us to process is not the protein, is not the fat. The hard part for us to process are the carbs, specifically the fiber. We've outsourced the entire process of digesting complex carbohydrates. These microbes that live inside of us, they actually work in teams. So what happens if you lose microbes within that team? What happens if you're missing some of the key players that are needed to break down that fiber? Where you're going raw vegan and you're putting your gut to the test as hard as you can with fiber, but you're not built for that. Can you be built for it? Can you make your gut capable of processing these foods? Yes, you can, but the solution is not dietary restriction. The solution is maximum plant-based diversity. That's Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B. And this is episode 70 of The Proof Podcast. friends, what's going on? Hope you're feeling good. I certainly am. And I'm sending my good vibes your way. It's great to be back in the saddle and here with you today. For new listeners, my name is Simon Hill, physiotherapist, currently finishing my master's in nutrition and host of this show, The Plant Proof Podcast. Each week, I get to sit down with super cool, super inspiring folks from all walks of lives doctors, nutritionists, athletes, people who have overcome chronic illness, and much more, to have conversations that can help us, you and I, become more mindful and conscious of the way that we live. Guess what? We have an exciting guest back on the show today for round two. It's hard not to like this guy, the Gut Health MD, or Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or best known as Dr. B. You may remember him from episode 17, where he dropped knowledge bomb after bomb about how our guts work and really what the microbiome is. That was one of the most listened to episodes yet, surpassing well over 100,000 unique listens in just the first few months. And loads of people are going back to it all the time. So if you haven't listened to it, save it, bookmark it, whatever you do, and then make some time to get through it. It's well worth it. In today's episode, we decided to take a deep dive into what is a rather controversial topic. Why Instagram influencers or some Instagram influencers have recently quit veganism. The entire point of our conversation is simply to further our understanding of factors that may contribute to this recent trend. We approached it using a case study and you'll hear us discuss sensitive subjects like anorexia and orthorexia. But to be clear, our case study is completely fictional. This is by no means an attack on any individual. Instead, this is an opportunity for all of us to be thoughtful about how social media informs our health choices and whether our current approach is truly health promoting or is online health culture part of the problem. This made for a really fun and interesting and unique episode. I hope you enjoy it, friends. I'll see you on the other side.
One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. B, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. All right. It's great to be back. This is, this is surreal to me that, you know, here we are, we're in New York and it was almost a year ago that we recorded our first episode together. And that was such a transformative experience for me. I don't know if we ever talked about this, but like going into that podcast episode, so a couple of things happened that just kind of made it where my schedule became free for us to record that episode together. And at first, like the things that happened prior to us recording the podcast, I was, I was a little disappointed because basically I had some plans that I wanted and it didn't work out. And then you and I record this podcast and it kind of goes viral in Australia. A lot of people have listened to it now. And it's really been, I feel like, I mean, I'll just speak for myself, completely sort of transformative because that's what motivated me to turn around and want to write a book. And now here I am. And literally this week, three days ago, I turned my book into my publisher for the first time. So it's really cool to see the full circle. Here we are a year later, we're talking and it's like, 
We're back, man. That's amazing, man. Like that that episode for me as well was it was an eye opener for me about the power of podcasts in general. Because before that, I mean, episodes had definitely been shared, but that one, and still to this day, as you as you just said, then it continues to be shared and shared and shared and the you know the knowledge that you dropped in that episode was nothing short of just fascinating and if anyone hasn't listened to it i would definitely recommend they go back it was episode 17 right yeah that was that was nearly a year ago mm-hmm. must have been right yeah i think we recorded it in late june and um and then it went live in july and yeah the rest is history <laughs> <laughs> now you just you you talked then to the to the fact that you've got a busy schedule, right? How have you managed to juggle your clinical life, your family life whilst writing this book? Oh my gosh, it's been crazy. I work full-time as a gastroenterologist. I am the biggest producer in terms of like the work that I do in my practice. Part of that is that as my profile has grown, there's more people seeking me out. So, I mean, I get people now who want to fly across the country to come to Charleston and come to my clinic. So, so I've become increasingly busy with my gastroenterology practice, have not scaled that back and, um, have, you know, just kind of been clocked over the top of the head with this whole Instagram thing where it's like, dude, you got to do something here. Mm. People want to have these conversations. People want to hear you and I sit down and talking about this stuff. And so, um, I felt compelled to give it the attention that it deserves. And that's what I've been doing. And that's, that led up to the book. And honestly, um, it's just been a lot of hard work, no cutting corners, putting in time, waking up early, a lot of, they know me very well at Starbucks. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got a lot of Starbucks points. I was like, go in there. And they, they told me they're like, dude, you're here every day. You need to get the app. <laughs> and so I downloaded the app and I think I have like 14 or 15 free cups of coffee waiting for me on my app right now that I need to start using. So you need to take a signed copy into to that Starbucks, I think, when it's out. Oh, definitely. No, I, I'm going to I'm going to definitely deliver a couple copies of the book when because I don't even think they know. I don't even think they know. <laughs> Top secret. Okay. Well, I'm like sitting there hacking away at my laptop and they just think I'm a medical doctor who's dealing, I guess, with the business of the practice. I don't know. I mean, and you you've you've also written scientific papers before, right? Oh yeah. More than 20. More than 20. So tell me what has it been like writing a book compared to a scientific paper? Because ultimately you're, you're writing to a different type of audience, right? Sure. Yeah. No, this, this book intentionally on my part has not been intended to be an academic text. I've written those. I've written chapters for books. I've written more than 20 manuscripts, peer reviewed articles. And it's a different process. And this to me is like, it's liberating. It's fun. I get to speak the way that I want to speak. I get to talk to people the way I would, the way that you and I are having a conversation. And at the end of the day, I am a teacher. That's the way that I see myself. I have this training, 16 years of medical training that allows me to interpret the research. And I'm your interpreter. I'm going to break it down and then I'm going to deliver it to you. And I'm going to be your teacher and, and, and show you show you what the science is teaching us because it's complicated. So the book allows me to really do that the way that I want to. And I can throw jokes in there and I can make it fun and I can make it like really fresh and exciting to read. Whereas when you're writing scientific articles, there's a format, mm-hmm. you know, there's a specific format. You have to do it that way. There's a certain tone that you have to take. 
I can't throw jokes into a scientific article. I wish I could. That's true. And you, you're not shy to throw a few jokes in, certainly online. And we were just talking about this before. How, how important is it to you to let your personality and, and humor come through from an online point of view, given that you you probably are talking to a lot of a lot of millennials and a lot of people that don't necessarily have training in actually reading a scientific paper. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I, I think that from my perspective, I, I didn't plan this. Right. I didn't plan this. I didn't start my Instagram account thinking that one day you and I would be sitting across the table from each other having these conversations. That was never part of the plan. The plan was share this information that you believe in so wholeheartedly and that you think that this could change the way that people look at their food, could change their health, could really make a positive impact on our planet. Put this information out there in a way that allows people to process it. Because look, I did 16 years of medical training. I was, I was taking night classes to learn how to interpret these papers. This is complicated stuff. You can't come to it from the position of no training and really be able to understand what's going on. That's why I'm here. I'll break it down. Let me break it down and let me give it to you. And then I want to present it to you in a way that you find to be fun so that you can really engage and interact with it. And that's, so that's kind of been the philosophy behind the way that I do it. But I think we all come to it with a different mm-hmm. approach, right? Yeah. But I mean, looking at the content that you put online, what I see is that it's very approachable. And in, in a sort of landscape in an area, you know, nutrition can be very divisive. Mm. And I see that the information that you put out is it's palatable to, to people from all walks of lives. And it's very easy for them to stumble across it and not feel guilty of the way that they're, they're currently eating and, and, and then therefore read more and be open to perhaps making changes. We need that. We need that because... Diet is like religion or it's like political party or political affiliation, right? People feel very passionately about these particular topics. And I'm trying to show people the way. I'm trying to show people what the science is putting out there for us. And so if I want to bring people towards this science and attract them, then I can't be going at them and saying, you're wrong. I can't make them feel defensive about what they've been doing in terms of their diet. These are not bad people. These are well-intentioned people that just want to get better. That's what they want. They're looking for solutions. They've been presented other solutions in the past. They've gone for it. And frankly, they probably haven't gotten the results that they wanted. Let me show you what the science is leading us towards. And then everyone's welcome. And however you choose to go about doing that, that's what I want you to do. But the bottom line is that you you walk towards this place where the science is doing the is 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 doing the leading, right? That you're not just making it up. That it's not some pseudo scientific thing. Let the science do the talking. I love it. You spoke of science before we dive into today's episode and, and the nitty gritty of of what we are going to talk about the topic. I think it would be good to to go back to episode seventeen. And just at a high level, explain the role and importance of the gut microbiome. All health starts in the gut. All health starts in the gut. This is not just about digesting your food. This is not just about whether or not you have irritable bowel syndrome. This is how your entire body basically connects back to your health. You have 70% of your immune system that lives right there, right there in the gut. 
communicating directly to your microbiome. You cannot separate the two. You damage the microbiome, you will damage the immune system. You have 90% of serotonin produced in the gut. Is the serotonin directly affecting the brain? Not necessarily, but there are more than 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. And there are there are many different ways in which the gut is basically directly communicating with the brain and vice versa. So there's the brain-gut connection. There is the there is the gut and the way that it communicates with the immune system. There's the way that the gut connects to our metabolism, whether or not we manifest diabetes. You can take the microbiome of someone who has insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, put it into a mouse, and that character, that trait is transferable through the stool. Through the stool, you are transferring someone's poop and you have just given them diabetes. That's messed up, man. That's crazy. And, <laughs> and that, that shows you the power of what we're able to do. It suppresses infections. Like there is this outbreak of C. diff infection that we have seen in the last 15 or 20 years, explosion of C. diff. And most people don't realize that here in the United States, 30,000 deaths from C. diff per year. That's a lot. I've had patients that years ago that I had to send and have their colon removed. The reason why this was happening was damage to the microbiome. The reason why this was happening. And so when you want to restore order to C. diff, what failed for us was to treat it with antibiotics. We kept trying to do that and it kept failing. What worked is when we became desperate and we used poop to treat the infection. Literally, that's how powerful this stuff is. You can take someone with an infection that kills 30,000 people per year and you do a fecal transplant and you transfer the poop over to this person who's infected. And just by doing that, you literally put the fire out and it's done almost every time. It's, in, it's, in, it's incredible. I mean, I'm telling you from a medical perspective as a doctor who has seen it all, seen people who you know, have miraculous recoveries and I've seen people go, that's amazing. That's insane. That, that works, that you can like literally take poop and, and destroy this like aggressive infection. It's insane. So I've got a couple of questions to, to sort of dig a bit deeper on that. First is this area of gut health research and, and understanding and then just speaking about microbiome in general seems to be absolutely exploding, right? Why is that? Are these relatively new discoveries in terms of, of types of bacteria and, and piecing it together, how it works and the importance of it? Prior to 2006, we didn't have the ability to really study these bacteria. And frankly, we weren't that interested. We figured they're just kind of there. You know, they're just kind of there along for the ride, consuming some of the calories that we put in our mouth. We didn't think that they were so relevant to our health. And a big part of the reason why is you can't grow them on a culture plate because they're what we call anaerobic. So anaerobic means that if you expose them to oxygen, many of them will die. So if that's the case, how are you going to grow these bacteria on a culture plate? So it's difficult to sort of replicate the, what's happening inside the gut. It's difficult to know exactly what's happening there. And so but what happened in 2006 is that we developed the ability to basically look at the DNA, to look at the DNA of these microbes. And so by doing that, and we could analyze and we could see, oh my gosh, like, look at this. This is insane. Prior to this time, we thought that there were like two to 300 species of bacteria very rapidly, within a few years, we knew that there were at least 10,000 species of bacteria that could inhabit your gut. And there are some estimates that it's well over 30,000, 35,000 different species of bacteria that each one of us have. These bacteria are so relevant to our health. And 
in 2000, Bill Clinton, who was the president of the United States at the time, called a press conference. And I mean, how often do you see the president of the United States call a press conference because there's been a scientific breakthrough, right? This was huge. I mean, this was on par, the type of fanfare that they would give if they found the cure for cancer. And so they call this press conference. Tony Blair is there. You have representatives from countries around the world there. And it's basically to announce that for the first time, they have cracked the human DNA code. And they thought that this was going to figure out all of our problems. This was destiny from a health perspective. If you figure out the DNA of the human, you can tell the whole story. Here's what they didn't realize. You and I sitting right here across the table from each other have 99.9% the same human DNA. 99.9% the same human DNA. And the difference between us more than anything is our microbiome, our microbiome, which is the DNA that's carried by the bacteria, mostly in your gut. You and I could be hypothetically 0% the same in terms of our microbiome. Now, I really doubt that's the case because we eat pretty similar diet, but, but, but the truth is that that is what makes us unique. It's as unique as a fingerprint. There's literally no one on the planet that has your microbiome, including your mom. There's no one on the planet. You could have a twin, an identical twin. They would have a different gut microbiome than you. And 99% plus, more than 99% of your genetic code comes from your microbiome. So there's this professor who I think is really cool. His name is Julian Davies. And when this whole thing happened in 2000, people were wigging out. People were like, oh my gosh, like we're, we're going to figure it all out. We're going to cure cancer. And Julian Davies wrote a letter. And basically what he said is, and this is to me, this is a great quote because it was, he was so right. And I actually put this into my book more than once. There's not, I don't think there's any other quote that I put in my book more than once. In a map for human health, count the microbes too. And it's the truth. In a map for human health, count the microbes too. So if you only look at human DNA, you're ignoring more than 99% of your genetic code. And that's the problem. You have to look at that too. And there's this, there's such a symbiotic relationship, right? So like that, the the back this bacteria holding ninety nine percent of the DNA, they they rely on us, and we rely on them. Is that right? Millions of years. There's never been a moment in human history from the time that we inhabited this planet. There's never been a moment where we were sterile. We've always had a relationship with these bacteria, and their turnover rate is so fast. And so there's this concept of co-evolution, which I think personally, I mean, I know we're not here today to talk about the paleo diet, but to me, the flaw in the paleo diet is you're talking about human evolution as if this is the big deal, but you're ignoring that 99% of your DNA comes from your gut microbes. And what we should be talking about is co-evolution, co-evolution, which is that we evolved together. And it's like you said, if I survive, my microbes survive. And if I perish, then those microbes, they potentially perish too. So we evolve to have a relationship with them and their ability to adapt is part of why it's worked out so well for us and why we need them so bad. Because when you change your diet, your body is not designed to change with you. If you didn't have the microbes, you would really struggle if you changed your diet. But these microbes literally within one meal are already adapting to the dietary changes that you made within one meal. And part of the reason why is because they turn over so fast. 
So like a, an average human um, turnover rate or like how a, a human generation is 25 years, right? It's roughly about 25 years for each, for each one of us to produce a new generation. These microbes, 20 minutes, 20 minutes. So if you think about it, it's kind of like, have you seen the movie Inception? Yeah. <laughs> and there's like different times, like, like different layers of time. And what could be one minute in one time zone is like mm. an hour in a different one. It's kind of like that, which I, I find to be a little bit crazy, but it's the truth. This is what's happening. One day in for us is 1800 years of evolution for these microbes. That's like going back to ancient Rome and then coming all the way straight to 2019 in 24 hours. That's how quickly they can evolve. Which which means that things can change fairly quickly, right? Things can change extremely quickly and they adapt. And that can be to our advantage, but it could be to our disadvantage too, right? So if you give an antibiotic, then you are in ways changing, adapting the microbiome. And in that process, you are, you are basically selecting for bugs that are antibiotic resistant. And that's the reason why these, this antibiotic resistance problem has crept up on us so quickly and is frankly a major threat for our generation into the future. It's not a major threat to most people in 2019, but if you allow this to continue to accelerate the way that it is, it's going to be a major problem for us. So these, these microbes are adapting like literally so quick. It's crazy. And we hear about microbes being good or bad, right? And that is perhaps a, a simplification and a way of explaining it in layman's terms. But what does that actually mean in terms of the the role and the function of that bacteria? Well, you see, you see patterns. You see patterns of the way that things play out in the gut. So it's it's probably an, you're right. It's probably an oversimplification to say that there's good and there's bad. But what we do see is consistently. The bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids are associated with human health. Short-chain fatty acids are postbiotics. They are the byproduct of what the bacteria inside your colon are doing. You cannot, you are not capable of producing them on your own. This is an example where we lean on our microbes. We rely on our microbes to be doing this for us. And what you get them from is fiber. And so you consume fiber. Fiber is your prebiotic. It feeds and nourishes the healthy bacteria. Those bacteria, they grow, they multiply. You get more of the healthy bacteria that process the fiber. So there's this sort of dietary momentum that you build where by eating this way, you get better and better and better at eating that particular way when you keep doing it. And they release these short chain fatty acids that have effects throughout the entire body. I mean, right there in the colon, they, they basically shut down leaky gut. People talk about leaky gut and, and increased intestinal permeability. You want to fix that? This is what you need. You need, you need short-chain fatty acids. You want to prevent colon cancer, the number two cause of cancer death in America? There are multiple mechanisms that we could go through. The short-chain fatty acids basically inhibit colon cancer. You want healthy gut microbes? This is what they do. They promote the growth of healthy gut microbes and directly inhibit the unhealthy ones like E. coli, salmonella, butyrate directly in, inhibits E. coli salmonella. But the cool thing is it's not just the gut. They communicate with the immune system. They prevent heart disease. Number one killer in the United States. I'm sure in Australia too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 
people are desperate for a cure to Alzheimer's. The pharmaceutical companies are spending billions of dollars trying to figure this out, how to work on Alzheimer's. And meanwhile, I'm over here eating my salad because short-chain fatty acids prevent Alzheimer's disease. We don't, need to, we don't need a pill to do this. We can do it with our food. But the key is fiber. And 97% of Americans are not even getting a minimal amount of fiber. So when we talk about good versus bad, there's this one side where you get you know, basically fiber and you feed these microbes and they thrive and you get health benefits. And then there's the flip side. And we know this, by the way, if anyone wants to read one of the most powerful studies to be published in this field, you go to Nature, which is literally the number one journal in the entire planet. It's impossible to get your, your, your study published in Nature. If a cure for cancer comes out today, that's where it's going to be published. Nature, number one, number one scientific journal on the planet. 2014, doctors Warren David and David Turnbaugh. And they published this study where basically this was a game changer. They took 10 people. This is all you needed. 10 people. And they basically changed their diet dramatically. And they checked their microbiome every single day. They either gave them a completely plant-based diet or a completely animal-based diet. If you look at the animal-based diet, eggs, cheese, meat, but if you look at the macros, the macros were consistent with the keto. It was, it was a keto diet before people were talking about the keto diet because it was published in 2014. Okay. So you give this plant-based diet, what do you see? You see the growth, a bloom of these healthy microbes, um, Roseburia and Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus that help us to process our fiber and produce short-chain fatty acids. And then the flip side, they flip them over and they give them the animal-based diet. Changes in less than 24 hours loss of those microbes, the ones that produce the short-chain fatty acids that are so healthy, you see less of those. Of course, you see a drop in short-chain fatty acids because you're not eating fiber. So you can't produce them. You're not, you're not giving your body the substrate that it needs to produce short-chain fatty acids. And then you see a bloom of this other group of bacteria, some of which are disturbing. There's this one called Bilophila wadsworthia. And Bilophila wadsworthia has been clearly associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So literally within five days of switching to this keto-based diet or animal product-based diet in the absence of any plant food at all, you have already seen dynamic changes in the gut microbiome where you are starving your microbes of what they need, the short-chain fatty acids. You are losing the anti-inflammatory bacteria. You are promoting the pro-inflammatory bacteria. And you are seeing this it's like basically a convict within the, the bacterial world, this biophilia wadsworthia, who wants to give you inflammatory bowel disease. That's what he wants to do. He's like an arsonist. And you're seeing him show up on the scene and you are empowering that bacteria. Do you, do you develop inflammatory bowel disease in five days? No, of course you don't. But if you have the right genetics and you eat this way, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And this is why we're seeing the explosion of inflammatory bowel disease around the world. You know, third world countries like Brazil, they didn't have this problem. They didn't have this problem if you went back to the 1970s in Brazil, and now it's blowing up in these countries. 11%, 15% increases in Brazil in inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis by the year. Wow. By the year, 11% by the year. and 15% by the year in inflammatory bowel That's disease. That's crazy. It's, and they, they, didn't, they don't even know how to take care of it because it's not a part of their 
medical world because they didn't have this condition. We had it here in the United States because we're eating more meat than any country in the world. And so, but here comes inflammatory bowel disease. And so they start coming to our conferences and starting to ask us to teach them, hey, how do we go about doing this? But the point is this study by Turnbaugh and Lawrence David, Nature 2014, showed us that within, within 24 hours, dramatic changes in the microbiome and what you eat matters. And there's dramatic differences between the two. So tell me that that study, is it generally, I mean, given it's, it is published in the very prestigious Nature Journal, is it, is it generally well, well received by your colleagues, gastroenterologists, other physicians in, in America? And is it something that they are using to help advise their, their patients in terms of the dietary changes that they should perhaps think about? The people who are aware of this study see the power that exists within the study. This was, this was a paradigm shift. This, this was, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, that I was going through changes myself. And when I saw this study, I, was, I, couldn't, I couldn't shake it off. It stuck to me. I kept thinking about it. Every time I would sit down to a meal, the study would cross my mind. And I was like, what am I doing to my body when I eat this way? The people who are aware of this study, they see the power among scientists. They're not trying to tear the study down. You would try to tear the study down if you had some sort of bias where you're trying to prove a point. If, you're, if your bias or your platform was bruised by this study, then of course you're going to go at it. I haven't, frankly, truly, I haven't seen a lot of conversation about the study out there, period. Not, not on the keto forums, not really out there, period because not enough people are aware that it even exists. And that's why these conversations that you and I are having need to be had, because even though you can publish in literally the top journal in the entire world, it still takes 17 years for translational research to be studied, to be published in a journal and actually work its way into the clinic. That's how long it takes, 17 years. So you know, that study was published in 2014. Do we want to wait until 2031 to start talking about it for real? No, we need it right now. We need it right now because people, people are getting sick. People are getting hurt with their diet and we need to be having these conversations. But it was, it was never meant to be a keto study. This is not people with an agenda, right? These guys, David Turnbaugh, Lawrence David, these are scientists of literally the highest order. These are people that could be in the conversation for a Nobel Prize someday. They're, they're defining biology. They are, they are changing the way that we think about how our body functions. They're not trying to prove a point on plant-based or keto or anything like that. I mean, honestly, they would probably be surprised to hear that you and I are talking about their study right now in this regard, because that's not what they were trying to do. But the point is it shows us, it shows us the way that the body works. And that's indisputable. We're all different. Yes, we're all different. We have a different microbiome, but this is biology. And if you change your diet, it's going to affect your microbiome. That's the point. You just said then changing the way that we think and a bit of a, a paradigm shift. And what I find so crazy is that you said before, I think 96% of Americans, and I'm pretty sure it's 96 or maybe even 97% of Australians are fiber, fiber deficient, right? That's, yeah, 97 and, for us, babe. And we are, we are protein obsessed yeah. and, and we're, we're focused on protein we're told it makes us strong and 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 that's that's like w what we can see but it sounds like we're forgetting about 
what we can't see in in the bacteria and looking after them and this kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, totally. And, and well, and the thing is too, is that when we're having these conversations, we need to show a higher level of understanding when we're talking about macros. Now, I will tell you, I, and I think you're this way too. Like, I, I really don't worry about macros when I eat at all. I don't worry about protein, fat, carbohydrate breakdown. I don't think about it. I eat. I eat what I want in abundance. That's, that's the great thing about a plant based diet. Maximum, yeah, maximum diversity in abundance, and it takes care of it for me, and I don't need to worry about it. But the, the, the issue is that if we're going to break these macros down, we need to have a little more detail than we currently do. You can't say carbs are bad. That's crazy. You can't say carbs are bad. All carbs are found in plants, and plants are incredibly healthy foods. If you separate the carbs, if you separate the way that Mother Nature created it, if you take the fiber away from the, away from the sugar, right? If you take a, a berry and you juice it and you remove the fiber and you keep the fructose, I don't think that's that healthy. All right. I don't think it's that healthy. But if you keep the food the way that it was meant to be by nature and the fibers in there, do berries cause diabetes? No. They actually prevent diabetes. Do berries cause weight gain? No. They prevent waking. And Neil Barnard actually did a study that was published, I think since actually since you and I recorded our last podcast in the last year, where basically he showed that you take people and you have them do a high carb, high carb, low fat diet without restriction, mm. no caloric restriction, have at it, have at it boys, like eat as much as you want, but it's got to be fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts. Whole Foods. And these people lost on average 14 pounds. They lost weight without any caloric restriction at all. So the point is that we need to be more specific when we talk about carbs. Are we talking about complex carbs? Are we talking about whole foods? Or are we talking about some sort of processed, mm. refined carbohydrate, which is totally different? Same is true for protein. We need to separate animal products from plant products because you see divergent differences. You see differences. So, for example, there was a study. There was a study that came out that was looking at low carb diet. Okay, and in this study, they defined low carb as less than thirty percent of calories from carbohydrates. Most people are about fifty percent, but less than thirty percent is nothing compared to keto. Keto is like five to ten percent carbs. And in this study, what they showed is that if you do this less than thirty percent carbohydrates, you reduce your life expectancy by four years by going low carb. But then they took a look and they said, hold on, where are you getting your other stuff from, your protein? And when they teased this out and they looked at animal versus plant protein, people who were getting their protein from a plant source actually lived longer. They actually were living longer. So, so the point being that when we look at protein, you got to separate animal from plant. When we look at fat, there are healthy fats and there are unhealthy fats. All right, and we need to separate those out. And we can talk about that more when we get into the rest yeah. of the stuff. It's a great point because they are umbrella terms and it's easy to see the, the conclusion of a study in an abstract or the, the title of a study and become confused. But like you said, if you jump into the study and dissect it down, you can really find what that actual diet was, was genuinely like in the study. You mentioned there around the carbohydrates. There's other studies that I've come across and spoken with the guys from Mastering Diabetes. Mm. And there are studies out there that look at low 
fat diets and insulin resistance. But when you go into the study, their definition of low fat is 35, even sometimes 40% fat. So it's wow. low fat compared to keto, but is it actually a genuinely low fat diet? Right. And, and that can become confusing for people, I guess. All right. So now we've laid out some, some of the, the background and what we spoke about in episode 17 on the, on the microbiome. And as I said, if anyone hasn't listened to that episode and wants to learn more about the microbiome in, in a little bit more detail, jump back and, and, and refer to that one. Let's discuss vegans who, or influencers particularly, who bail on veganism. There's, there's been a few prominent ones lately, and they have sort of pointed to gut health reasons for, for the reason that they've reintroduced animal products back into their diet. Before we, we jump into that, I know that you and I, we've, we've sort of chatted about this before, but it's probably worth chatting first about just the treatment of people. So perhaps we, we talk, we just start this conversation around, around what it means to, to be respectful to other humans. Yeah, I think that to me, the people who choose to be vegan are opting to behave. I have higher expectations for them, right? Because you are taking up this mantle on behalf of great reasons, compelling reasons, compassion, compassion for animals. Um, the environment and potentially your diet as well. But, you know, to me, really veganism is about, it's about compassion for animals and caring about the environment. And that those are selfless things. Those are not selfish. Those are selfless things. And when we think about people behaving that way, I just think it's really important that we behave that way when we're dealing with each other too and show respect to each other. You know, if someone says something that you don't like, to attack them is not productive. You know, conversation, questions, trying to understand better. To me, that's where it's at. Let's try to understand better. And what, you, what we all need to know and just be upfront and recognize is that someone who puts stuff out there on the internet, do you really think that you are getting the whole story? Do you really think that they're telling you every single thing that's going on in their life and all of the relevant details? Probably not. And these are people too, you know, and they may suffer from true medical illness, um, which we may be talking about. They may suffer from psychiatric illness. And we're not helping another person when we go at them. You know, I've seen some bullying that occurs. Bullying of any variety on the internet, I, I don't have a lot of tolerance for it. You know I mean, I think about what if that was my daughter? I, I, it would be hard to hold me back. And I just think that if we're going to be, if we're going to behave on a higher order and be vegan and just people in general, let's show respect to each other. Yeah. And I couldn't say that, that better myself, but I think the other thing to think about is aggression and negativity, how that's portraying veganism to other people who, who, who may be just seeing that for the first time. And that can be confronting and scary for them and it's not really you know yeah uh, an open arm style approach for other people to look at veganism as something that potentially they could move towards in the future i love the passion that people have for veganism 
We want to invite people into the tent. We want more people to come over to our side. In order for that to happen, we have to be welcoming. You know, we have to present something that we welcome you with open arms and people who, you know, kind of walk in our direction and then maybe take a step back. We shouldn't go after them. We should just continue to encourage them, honestly. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so I want to sort of break down, I guess, a, a typical journey that some of these influences have, have been on. And obviously, from the outset, because this is, is 100% not a, a personal thing, I'm going to discuss a, a hypothetical Instagram influencer scenario. And this, this discussion is, is nothing more than education. So the listeners or the community can understand what may have been going on at a cellular level for that person. And if anyone finds themselves in a similar position, 
what their options are for improving their gut health. And if you're if you're trying to figure out who this person is, there's, there's no point. So you can stop trying. This person is completely made up. They're, <laughs> they're they're based on some general trends that we have observed. So you can you can get a feel for the typical journey that many of these people seem to have had and and how they've been suffering as well. Hmm. So I'm going to run you through who this person is. This hypothetical okay. person. And then we can we can sort of have a conversation and get some commentary from your end on what you think from a clinical perspective is going on and how you would manage it. Yeah. So this person is a 23-year-old female living in San Diego. I'm actually going there in a couple of weeks. Sorry, I've been to San Diego. I've gone to San Francisco in a couple of weeks. She has a massive Instagram account, millions of followers. She shares beautiful food photos, recipes, is very forthcoming with her personal story. She shares some details that many would consider a private. She's had gut issues since childhood, suffered with abdominal pain and lots of constipation. She thought that was normal, that everyone lived in pain like that. As a, a teenager, she developed anorexia nervosa. She had low self-esteem at this time and, and always thought that she was obese. She weighed 40 kilos, which is around 98 pounds. She found herself comparing herself to other girls that she saw on the internet, which gave her a complex. And she severely restricted her intake as a result. She knew she had a problem, but she struggled to control it. She hasn't shared this publicly, but at one point her anorexia was so out of control that she passed out at home. Her mother had to call 911 and she was admitted to the hospital for kidney failure and electrolyte imbalance. After this was corrected, she transitioned into inpatient treatment in an eating disorder unit. She then continued to work closely with a clinical psychologist who specialized in eating disorders. She decides to start an Instagram account and quickly makes friends with, with several other online influencers. It feels a part of a community. The new trend is to go vegan, so she decides to do that. Initially, she feels great. She feels fantastic. This is the healthiest relationship that she has had with food in years. She starts sharing her content online, gets promoted by her influencer friends because she's talking about the same thing that they're talking about. And next thing you know, she has a massive following of other young women who look to her for advice on how to live. The new trend becomes raw vegan. She notices several other online influencers moving to this trend. So she decides to do it herself. Publicly, she hypes it up as being fantastic, something everyone should be doing. Many of her followers follow suit. But privately, after a few weeks, she starts to notice her digestive issues are coming back. Bloating, distension, acid reflux, and nausea. She's only having a bowel movement once every six to eight days. After she eats, she's having severe abdominal pain that comes in waves, sharp and intense. It feels like she may need surgery. Maybe her appendix or her gallbladder is the problem. Something has to change and she knows that. 
She notes another trend among the online community to go raw fruit vegan. Once again, she publicly publicly hypes this up and talks about how great she feels. Privately, she was hoping this would fix the bloating and gas issues that she's been having. But to be honest, they're getting worse. She's scared of food because it makes her hurt. She's unintentionally losing weight, weight that she didn't really have to lose. She's fatigued, lightheaded, and depressed in addition to the gut issues. She privately consults with a nutritionist, knowing that there's a problem. The recommendation is the low FODMAP diet. She acknowledges that staying raw may not be working for her, so she allows cooked food into her diet. She does the low FODMAP diet with dietary restriction. It feels very restrictive to her. She's a little bit better. In her independent research, she's become increasingly fearful now of gluten. Hmm. She wonders if she has celiac disease, but regardless, she feels like gluten may be causing her trouble, so she cuts the gluten out. So now she is low FODMAP, gluten-free vegan. Her family is becoming concerned. It's reminding them of when she was hospitalized for anorexia. Our influencer is super stressed and the similarities to her teenage years are triggering her and amplifying the stress 100-fold. At this point, she is broken. She doesn't know what to do, but she knows she can't continue what she's currently doing. So she decides to try out animal food again because anything has to be better. She starts with eggs. She heard that bone broth is good for the gut. So she starts doing that too. It feels actually really good to her. There's progress. So she adds salmon in. At this point, her stress levels are dropping substantially. Her gut is more comfortable and her stress level is down. She's also noticed several of her influencer friends who have recently abandoned veganism. It seems like the growing trend is that this vegan thing doesn't work. So she sits down to create a YouTube video explaining why she quit veganism. Okay, so that's the hypothetical scenario. That is uh, a powerful story that I think is quite relatable to anyone who's listening because I'm sure that you've maybe not met someone exactly like that. But I think that there's a lot of trends there that we can see playing out in, you know, online culture, Instagram culture, and with our influencers. You know what? Honestly, there's so much there that I feel like we should go layer by layer. break it down. And just break it down. And before we get into the science and the gut health specific stuff, let me just say that, you know, we need to each take a moment and ask ourselves, where are we getting our information from? And is it a reputable source? Okay. So what we have here is someone that we have put on a pedestal, which is, this is extremely common. We put a person on a pedestal with the number of followers that we have, and somehow we equate their the power of their opinion with the size of their following online. And that's a big mistake. You know, we have someone who suffered with a psychiatric illness and is, and is frankly having a very public battle with that underlying psychiatric illness. And yet there are people who are tuning in and using her recommendations to make their own personal life choices. And 
it's hard for me to believe that that is a good call that you should be doing that. I think that at the end of the day, you need to look at the qualifications of where you're getting your your advice from. There is nothing more important to you than your health. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to do something that's going to mess up your health because it's trendy, because it's cool, because your friend's doing it. Those are the reasons why some of the choices were being made on her on her part, because by riding the trend, it helped her to continue to grow her Instagram influence. That's part of the problem. You're being trendy intentionally because that allows you to grow your Instagram influence. So let's start with that. And let, now let's get into the science. And let's talk about something that you said in the very beginning, which is her childhood. So you talked about she had GI issues as a child. Uh, abdominal pain, constipation, goes all the way back. And what what this is saying to me as I hear this is this is a person that we already know suffers from dysbiosis. There has been damage to her gut microbiome that goes all the way back to her childhood. Now, she hasn't given us the complete history. If she came into my office and we were sitting down and talking to each other, there's a series of questions that I would ask her. I would ask her, were you born by C-section? Were you born by vaginal delivery? We know that that has an effect on the microbiome. I would ask whether or not her mom, her dad, suffered from irritable bowel syndrome from other GI-related issues. Part of the reason why I'm asking that is because that's who you inherit from. You inherit your microbiome from your family members. If there's been damage to their microbiome during their lifetime, they could potentially pass on those characteristics, those traits to you. There was an interesting study. This is impossible to do with humans because we live too long. But there was an interesting study done by a guy at Stanford. His name is Justin Sonnenberg. And he looked at a mouse model of low fiber diet. And basically what he showed is over generations, there is a loss of species if you keep the mice on a low fiber diet. So in other words, it's transferable. If grandma has 1,200 species when she's born, but she's eating the standard American diet, low on fiber, the standard Australian diet, low on fiber, grandma may go from 1,200 down to 900 species by the time that she has mom. Mom is born, inherits 900 species, again, standard American diet, low fiber. She goes from 900 to 600. And now here we have this girl who's born with 600 species, and we know that a loss of diversity is associated with disease and is associated with dysbiosis, a loss of diversity. You need those species to be there to be able to do their job. So what I'm hearing here is someone who I already know, she's got underlying dysbiosis. It started early in life. Many of these things may have been, frankly, I think it was completely out of her control. It was completely out of control because she's a child. She's not making her own choices on her diet and things like that. But who knows what diet she was raised on? Is is breastfeeding another factor in terms of bacteria proliferation of those species? A hundred percent. Breastfeeding. So C-section, whether you're C-section or vaginal delivery, family issues, uh, family history, breastfeeding, a hundred percent. And not just breastfeeding, but for how long? The longer, the better. Um, we talked about in the first episode that I would, I'm very proud of my wife who breastfed our children to two years old. Those human oligosaccharides. <laughs> the human milk oligosaccharides, <laughs> the HMOs. Yes, great memory. So, And, and they're, those are a fascinating thing because um, just to recap real quick for the listeners, so you don't have to go all the way back to episode 17 for this specific part, human milk oligosaccharides are 
basically complex sugars that you find in mom's breast milk. There's actually over, over 200 varieties that we know of. It's crazy. Over 200 varieties. How much nutritional value do they have for, for, the, for the child? Literally zero, none. They have no nutritional value. They do nothing with the human gut. But what they do is they actually feed and nourish the healthy bacteria that live inside baby's gut. They help the healthy species bifidobacterium, which by the way, are short chain fatty acid producing bacteria. Good guys. They help the bifidobacterium to grow, multiply, and have a more um, dominant presence in this developing child. So that's definitely a big thing. And then antibiotics. Antibiotics. So like how many ear infections did she have? Has she had issues with sinus infections? Um, Did she have bad skin? A lot of of people are are prescribed doxycycline for their skin, things like that. 100%. Great point. So so those are the kinds of things that I'm wondering about. It's not that we have the ability to change that, right? But as I'm starting to interpret and understand what's going on with this young, young woman, what I'm hearing here is this is a person who I already know she has dysbiosis and she's been suffering from it for a long time and it predated the onset of her eating disorder. Is there a difference between, I guess, dysbiosis and when does it become formally IBS? So dysbiosis is an interesting thing and a little hard to define to to some degree, right? Um, It's one of these deals where to some degree, you know it when you see it. It's a loss of harmony within the gut. It's a loss of balance. Balance is very important. Um, It's not that I necessarily want to see us get rid of the bad bacteria. I just want to see them be not important, not present, not dominant. I want the good guys to be dominant and in control. But there's a balance that exists. And when we have the proper balance, the gut is working the way that it's supposed to. We're getting the right nutrition out of our food. And we're optimizing our immune system. When, when we lose our balance, we slip into dysbiosis, which causes damage to the tight junctions that keep the cells lining our gut stuck together. You break down those tight junctions that increases intestinal permeability and you get leaky gut. And when you get leaky gut, you get the release of something called bacterial endotoxin, which is produced by these bad guys, E. coli, salmonella. They produce bacterial endotoxin. Bacterial endotoxin is, translation, inflammation. You want to look at inflammation in the body. That's what it is. When someone comes into the hospital, super sick from an infection, septic, blood pressure is dropping. They're not breathing on their own. They're not conscious. They're not aware that you're even there. They're completely confused. We call that sepsis. Sepsis is driven by bacterial endotoxin. That's an extreme example. But low-grade inflammation has also been associated with other inflammatory conditions, including heart disease, including type 2 diabetes. So this bacterial endotoxin is a powerful thing, and it comes back to dysbiosis. The pathway of dysbiosis is damage to the gut bacteria, increased intestinal permeability, leaky gut, and release of bacterial endotoxin. That's what people need to sear into their mind. And when this happens, you manifest disease. And one of the diseases that you can manifest is your bowel syndrome. So they're not necessarily the same thing. Dysbiosis is the root cause of your bowel. Okay, so let's jump back into her story. So she was explaining that as a teenager, she developed anorexia nervosa. How does that then play into gut health through, through restriction or, or whatever else? This is huge. This is so big um, in terms of understanding what's going on with this young woman. 
Um, when I was at the University of North Carolina, where I did my GI specialty training, it actually, believe it or not, is one of the top eating disorder clinics in the entire country. There is a microbiome study that I'm going to reference in a few moments here that came out of the University of North Carolina. And I worked very closely with many of the clinical psychologists, PhD level. These are doctors who dedicate their life, their career to trying to help these people who have eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. And the reason why I got to know them so well is the amount of overlap that exists between eating disorders and functional gastrointestinal disorders like irritable bowel syndrome. And if you look at someone like this, admitted to the hospital because her anorexia is so severe, kidney failure, electrolyte abnormality, requiring inpatient stay to work on her eating disorder, the amount of overlap between that and functional GI disorders like irritable bowel syndrome is virtually 100%. It's virtually 100%. I mean, studies are getting numbers like 97%, 94%. So we see this tremendous overlap that exists between the two. And the question is, when you see an overlap, is it just a coincidence or is there something that's connecting the two? Is there something that brings it all back together that makes it explain the whole package from one place? And so there was a study that was done at the University of North Carolina by this group, by this group of people that I was friends with. And um, looking at the microbiome of people that have anorexia, and what they found is severe damage to the anorexia with loss of diversity. So you're taking someone who already has dysbiosis, you introduce anorexia, there's a loss of diversity with the anorexia. And what they found in this study out of the University of North Carolina is that when you correct the eating disorder, and you reintroduce diversity to the diet. You, you basically go from super restrictive, which is what they are when, they're, when they are anorexic, to now you reintroduce the diversity again, abundance. You actually can restore diversity back to the microbiome. Not necessarily a complete recovery, but that you can restore diversity back to the microbiome. So as I'm thinking about this young woman, she is anorexic and I know what's going on in her gut. She, we already know that she had underlying dysbiosis and now it's worse. Now it's worse and it's severe and there's been damage to her gut microbiome. With that, she gets increased visceral hypersensitivity. Okay. With what she has going on, irritable bowel syndrome, there is increased sensitivity to what's going on within her body. And we also know that it affects gut motility. So she becomes much more vulnerable to any sort of damage or any sort of perturbation to what's going on within her gut. And the other thing that comes with this is the overtones of the brain gut, anxiety, depression, hypervigilance, which is a wildly underrated thing. But I think many people who suffer with chronic illness can relate to this because everyone does it. This is part of being human. This is not weakness by this person. This is part of being human. You wake up in the morning. And you say, I hope that today is going to be a good day. But then you feel like crap. You get some bloating, gas, abdominal pain, a little bit of nausea, maybe some acid reflux. And you go, shit, here it comes. It's coming again. And now whatever you're doing, you're trying to be human. You're trying to have a good day. But your attention now goes to your gut. And you can't get your mind off of it. You it's can't shake it. it. Yeah. 
and you're stuck and you're fixated and you're hypervigilant in every single little thing that happens. Now you're aware of every single little thing that's going on within your gut. And that actually, believe it or not, activates the stress response in your body. You get release of something called CRF. CRF is associated with basically the stress response in your body. And this actually intensifies the pain. Becomes you, you become even more sensitive to what's going on. And so it's this vicious cycle that occurs in these people that have had damage to their gut microbiome. They're hypersensitive, but they're also hypervigilant. And they're activating their stress response. And they get into this vicious cycle and they can't break themselves out of it. And when you think about all these things, all these things that I'm talking to you about, without breaking them down each individually, study by study, just know every single one of these things, CRF release, hypersensitivity, gut motility, um, even hypervigilance, all connect back to damage or changes to the gut microbiome. So we know where this person is at in this point in her life. Hmm. And I will tell, I will tell you, People can get over the eating disorder, but their gut is never the same. I have seen so many patients that struggle for the rest of their life with functional GI disorders because of the damage that was done to their gut during this teenage experience of having an eating disorder. And the, the last thing I want to toss in there, which was not discussed in her story, and this is frankly the way that this happens most of the time for me in my clinic in real life, this is a sensitive topic. but. There's a very, very real chance uh, of some sort of serious major trauma occurring during her childhood. There's a very real chance of sexual abuse. The people who manifest severe functional GI disorders as children, the people who manifest uh, eating disorders, it's not 100%, don't get me wrong, but there is a very high rate relative to the normal population of sexual abuse history or some sort of traumatizing event occurring. And if you get to know these people enough and you build that trusting relationship, you can get to a point where you have that conversation. But many times the what happened to them is so traumatizing that they are suppressing it and they don't mm. they're not even like conscious that it's in play and they don't want to talk about it. That that also goes back to your point at the start about the the youtube video and them sharing their experience it's probably not the full story which is another reason to show more compassion right and and not be so aggressive you know because these these people are they're not they don't they didn't choose or want to be in in this situation if someone is listening to this and thinking that i'm talking about a specific person or taking it personal i'm clearly not i'm talking about general things here okay but there's a very real chance of some sort of sexual abuse history in this kind of case. And um, if you imagine that you are interacting with this person on the internet and you don't know that, what if I told you that? What if I told you that this person that you're bullying and going after them and telling them how what a horrible human being they are, that part of what's feeding into this is that they were abused as a child? I think that you would feel very differently about yourself mm. for what you just did to that person. And let's keep that in mind and just be respectful of each other. It's really important. Okay, so at this stage where this this girl has gone in as an inpatient into the eating disorder unit, right, the, the next part of her story was deciding to start an Instagram, mm-hmm. and making friends online with other influencers, and she – came across this new trend of going vegan. Mm. Just before we jump into that, I want to 
sort of pause back on the eating disorder unit. If that was someone that you knew or your daughter, what would you like to see as the next steps for them in terms of building a healthy relationship with food? This is such a complicated thing. It's really hard to shake, right? It, it, I think about it conceptually very similar to alcoholism. Most people don't realize like these alcoholics, this is a real disease. I've looked, I've stared into the eyes of people that have true alcoholism. And I've had horrifying conversations with them where I tell them to their face that you're going to die in the next three to six months if you don't quit alcohol. And the problem is that they are so compelled to drink and they love the alcohol more than they love themselves. And it's incredibly sad because a lot of times the family is so fed up and over it that they bail, right? And so conceptually, this is like alcoholism in a lot of ways because this is something that sticks. You can't get away from it. She might have her eating disorder under better control relative to where she was during her teenage years, but that is not, it is not history. It's not gone. It's still a part of who she is. It's always going to be a struggle for her when it comes to her food. And so as she's making these dietary choices, we need to keep this in mind that she may be struggling with her eating disorder and she's publicly showing you what she's eating and she's trying to give it a positive spin and make it sound like everything is great and fine and dandy. She may not even be acknowledging that this is, mm -hmm. that this is happening. She's just trying to make it seem like, hey, everything's great. It's a good point. I mean, you can see a pretty feed and pretty photos of, of Buddha bowls and can easily mask a, a potential eating disorder, right? And she's trying to cover it up. She's trying to, and she's trying to cover it up, and maybe not consciously, but this is something that she struggles with, and she's towing the line of having control over what's going on here. And then the the next that that step from going from a vegan diet to a raw vegan diet that seems to be a really a really common occurrence in some of the stories that i've heard of people that have then had some some gut issues why would that be the case well so first of all we're taking a vegan diet which as you know i fully support and part of my support for a, a I'm going to call it plant-based diet because really when we're talking about health, you know, you could, you could be a junk food vegan and that's not a healthy diet. It's not synonymous with health. Right. Not, not at all. I mean, frankly, I, I hate to say this, many vegans probably don't mm. want to hear this, but I would argue that a paleo diet is healthier than a junk food vegan diet. Mm. Okay. And I've, I've spoken recently, I think even the, the term plant-based is starting to get blurred in that a lot of processed foods are using that now on their packaging, right? So it's this, it's now this almost distinguishing between that and what whole food plant-based is. It's a slippery slope. And, <laughs> and you, you know this, Simon, that the food industry, the minute they see a trend, they're going to try to figure out ways to insert themselves into the trend and be a part of it. That's the way, that's the way that these things work. But nonetheless, I, I, I think that the issue here is that you're taking a, a, a vegan diet and the reason why it's healthy goes back to this Turnbaugh, Lawrence David study from Nature 2014, and put that together with the American Gut Project, Dr. Rob Knight of the University of California, San Diego, who basically has collected survey data and samples from people from around the world, over 15,000 specimens from over 11,000 people from like 40 something countries from around the world. 
and asked a simple question, which is, what is the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome? And if you listen to episode 17, you know what I'm about to say. And it's one of my big things. I'm, I'm banging on the drum and trying to get everyone to jump on board with me on this. Diversity of plants. The single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. It's not how much kale you eat. It's not superfoods. And I'll tell you right now, straight up, being totally serious, I will take diversity of plants every single day of the week. I will take it over superfoods. You can have your superfoods. I'll take my diversity of plants because when you combine all of these plants that I'm eating, I'm dominating you. I'm dominating the, I'm di- I'm dominating the superfoods with plant-based diversity. So if we start from this position, plant-based diversity is optimal for a gut microbiome. If we start from that position, we're starting to drift away from it if we're restricting our vegan diet, right? If it's a vegan diet, whole foods, plant-based, maximum plant-based diversity, from my perspective, then we're talking about what is potentially the healthiest diet based upon what science has shown us for, for a healthy gut microbiome and enjoying all the downstream effects that come with that. But if you restrict it, if you say, I'm not going to eat this, I'm not going to eat that, then you are not doing optimal plant-based diversity. And you can take the same food, the same fruit or vegetable, and you can change it through cooking. And in some cases, it's, you could argue it's better. You could argue it's worse. But the point is, it's not exactly the same. And in many cases, it's definitely easier for your body to process and digest. You know, take tomatoes, for example. When you cook a tomato, you unleash the lycopene. You release the lycopene. You get more of that by cooking your food. So the point is that there's advantages in many cases to cooking the food. And when we're talking about processing these foods, the hardest part for us to process is not the protein. The hardest part for us to process is not the fat. We are built as human humans with what we need to be able to break down those things, the proteases, the bile, the lipases. We have those things. The hard part for us to process are the carbs specifically the fiber. And the reason why it's hard for us to process is that we have, an, we have outsourced it. We have outsourced the entire process of digesting complex carbohydrates. We as humans lack the ability to do this by ourselves. If I sterilize your gut, you get nothing out of fiber and it's just going to make you cramp up and miserable. But these microbes that live inside of us, they actually work in teams. They work in teams, not individuals. You got the squad that basically goes to town. Whole squad's coming in. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's a really cool study that was done by this guy, Zipping Lao, who is from Rutgers. And I'm sorry, Lipping Zhao from Rutgers. And he basically showed that they work as what he calls a guild. All right. So it's a team. It's a team of, of microbes that break down your fiber for you. So what happens if you lose microbes within that team? What happens if you're missing some of the key players that are needed to break down that fiber? It's at a minimum, at a minimum, going to be sloppy, right? You're going to start to lose. Right. (laughs) And we know, going back to her history, we know that she has underlying dysbiosis, loss of diversity. We know that anorexia is associated with a loss of diversity. So you lose that diversity and now you're at a position where you're going raw vegan and you're you're putting your gut to the test as hard as you can. With, with fiber, but you're not built for that. 
Can you be built for it? Can you make your gut capable of processing these foods? Yes, you can, but the solution is not dietary restriction. The, the solution is maximum plant-based diversity. So raw vegan is to some degree a restrictive diet, and that's where I think we're starting to slip into a bad place. Continuation of that, Ron, what about the, we hear all the time a plant-based diet is quite alkaline, right? Is, is there potentially any issues with a loss of acidity in the stomach? Is acidity in the stomach important? So this is, this is a, a little bit of a tricky topic. So let me say this. Yes, uh, acidity within the stomach is important. But when we say that, that it's alkaline, we don't necessarily mean that you're losing stomach acid by eating this way, right? That's not what's happening. You're not making your, you're not making your stomach lose stomach acid by eating a plant-based diet. If anything, you're optimizing the function of your intestine, the way that it works, the motility. If you look at short chain fatty acids, which we talked about before, the byproduct of fiber, which you can only get from plants, you can't get them from anywhere else. If you look at the production of butyrate and short chain fatty acids, they affect gut motility. So stomach acid by itself, yes, we need it. If you remove it with a medication like a proton pump inhibitor, that by itself can induce dysbiosis. But are you actually causing the loss of stomach acid by eating plants? No, you're not. And you're not inducing dysbiosis. Remember, the pathway of dysbiosis, just to recap it real quick, is damage to the gut microbiome, loss of balance, loss of diversity, which causes increased intestinal permeability and release of bacterial endotoxin, right? Well, guess what addresses all three of those processes? short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids optimize the gut bacteria, repair leaky gut, and reduce bacterial endotoxin. And we have studies that prove that. So that's what we want to pursue. That's what we want to get. But it's just the process that we have to go through to get there. So I don't, I don't worry so much about the stomach acid on this. Do I worry about the stomach acid when someone is on a long-term proton pump inhibitor? Yes, I do. And in a perfect world, I don't want people on those drugs long-term. The challenge that we have is finding solutions to get people off of those medications. Okay, so continuing on with this this girl's journey. So she moves to the raw vegan diet. And shortly after, quite quickly, she start started to notice some of those digestive issues were coming back, right? The the sharp, intense pains. What would have been causing those, that pain that was coming in waves? So so this is this is a classic example of something I see in my clinic almost every single day, except in her case, it's more complicated. It's more severe. And what I'm worried about in her is underlying constipation. Now, I know that she said that she's only having a bowel movement once every six to eight days. But even if she told me she was having diarrhea, I would still be worried about constipation. Let me walk you through what I'm thinking here, okay? The number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across is constipation. If someone's constipated, they're going to produce more gas from their food. When they produce that gas, guess what the gas does? It constipates them. There are studies, those are crazy studies, where they've taken methane gas and infused it into an animal like a dog. And they show that just by infusing this gas into the intestine, you slow down intestinal motility. So you take someone who's constipated, they produce gas, which produces more constipation, which produces more gas, mm. and you create a vicious cycle. 
gas bloating, number one cause of gas and bloating that I come across is underlying constipation. Any person who walks through my door in the clinic and says to me, I'm having gas and bloating, it immediately comes to mind. Acid reflux. When you affect gut motility, when gut motility slows down because someone is constipated, the stomach shuts down. The stomach, there's this signal that exists between the, the stomach and the colon. The colon basically will send the signal back to the stomach and say, whoa, there's no room down here. You can't send anything our way. So the stomach shuts it down. What do you get? You get, instead of things going down, they want to come up. You get acid reflux and you get nausea. And you get what we would describe, this is using the word a little bit differently, but we would describe anorexia. And what that means is just kind of, I don't feel like eating. And, and then the other thing is this, this sharp, intense pain that's coming in waves. All right. When I hear that, again, I'm thinking about constipation. Here's why. The other thing that could give you sharp, intense pain that comes in waves is a bowel obstruction. Your body does not separate the two. Your body interprets severe constipation and bowel obstruction the exact same way. And the reason why it comes in waves is because that's your colon moving through. Your colon motility comes in waves. It sweeps in waves. That's, that's peristalsis. And each time the colon revs up with peristalsis to move through, it wants to push stuff through. It notices that there's something wrong. Things are not moving. When it notices that, it's trying to tell you there's a problem. So it sounds the alarm. So you get this sharp, intense pain. This is most likely constipation. Now, how could it be diarrhea and be constipation? I said that she comes in and she has diarrhea. I'm still worried about constipation. The most severe constipation presents with diarrhea. People get what we call overflow. For lack of a better word, it's a little weird to say it this way. It's a log jam. You have stool that's basically piled up and stuck. The solid stuff can't move. The liquid sneaks through the cracks and crevices, and it comes out the bottom watery and loose. And it's incredibly confusing to the patient, and it's also confusing to the doctor because it's a big challenge. If you have someone who comes in with this, abdominal pain, bloating, nausea, acid reflux, and they're having diarrhea, and you treat them with Imodium to slow down their motility, what are you doing? You're going to make it worse. You're making it worse. You have to clean their bowels out. You have to dislodge the obstruction. And when you do that, then they feel so much better. And then the key is maintaining bowel regularity. So what's, what's causing, what's the underlying cause of the, that obstruction, the constipation in the first place? I think, it, I think it goes all the way back to the childhood. I think it goes all the way back to the damage to the gut microbiome. People who have irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, because we separate irritable bowel syndrome into two main types, all IBS, all irritable bowel has abdominal pain, with a change in bowel habits and the abdominal pain improves when you have a bowel movement. And we separate it into either D for diarrhea or C for constipation. There's not much that separates IBS-C from just plain constipation. The difference between the two, frankly, is that the IBS-C person is much more sensitive to the constipation. They feel it a lot more. And in that case, if you fix the constipation and they start to poop, guess what happens? The IBS goes away. They feel better. So, but I think at the end of the day, it's, it's really the IBS and it's the underlying dysbiosis that's driving this issue for her. Okay. So she then is obviously experiencing, a, you know, a lot more discomfort. She seeks out a private consultation with a nutritionist that 
recommends to follow the low FODMAP diet, which I think we may have covered in episode 17 previously. I've covered it in some other podcasts, but for the purpose of this discussion, let's, let's go into it at a high level. And she does that, the low FODMAP diet with dietary restriction, and it felt really restrictive to her. So let's, let's break that down. Yeah. So the issue here is the low FODMAP diet is being inappropriately applied. It was never meant to be this way. It's disappointing to me when I see, because most of the nutritionists that I know would not recommend doing the low FODMAP diet the way that this is, that it's being done in this particular case. But I hate to say it, this is the way that most people are doing it. When people do low FODMAP, what they do is they basically restrict themselves from exposure to the FODMAP. So let's break down what FODMAPs are. FODMAP is an acronym that stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. We're talking about the carbs in our food. We're talking about sugars, simple sugars like fructose, lactose. We're talking about complex sugars, oligosaccharides, which are multiple different sugars that are basically linked together, or polyols, which are basically sugar molecules that have an alcohol attached to them. All right. So you find these predominantly in plant foods. Now, that being said, you will also find FODMAPs in, um, in dairy. Lactose is a FODMAP. Okay. So lactose is one particular category that you find in dairy. Um, you will also find fructose, which is predominantly in fruit. You will find galactans or galacto-oligosaccharides, which are the ones that are classically associated with beans, right? To, to, you have fructans. So fructans are what you will find in onions, garlic, um, and also grains like wheat. So wheat, barley, rye, you will find fructans. And finally, polyols which you will find in artificial sweeteners. And you will also find in many different fruits out there. Okay. So those are the categories of FODMAPs. And if we were to go and restrict all those things, then we would be do something, doing something that's very paleo-esque, which is that we would be eliminating grains. We would be eliminating beans, legumes. We would also get rid of garlic, onions, and most fruit. So it's a very restrictive thing to eliminate all these things. Losing that diversity that you've been speaking about. Big time. So if we're starting from ideal diet is maximum diversity, we are drifting away from that hard when we go low FODMAP. Now, the history of the low FODMAP diet is that you have to understand this was developed in your country, in Australia, Monash University. And the way that they developed it was never meant to be permanent dietary restriction. It was never meant to be that way. It was meant to be temporary restriction, temporary restriction, so that you allow the gut to settle down. And then what you do is you go category by category, lactose, fructose, fructans, galactans, polyols. You go category by category and you reintroduce these foods initially at a very, very, very low dose and then a moderate dose and then a high dose. And you test your response, but you're doing it in isolation. I'm going to tell you, this is complicated. That sounds like you need to be doing that in under the guidance of someone who really knows what they're doing. You need a qualified professional. You need a dietitian, a nutritionist. You could come and have me do it, but truly, you're probably better off with a dietitian doing it because this is what they do all day. So, and, and as you're stepping through, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're trying to identify 
what the trigger foods are for you. You're trying to identify categories of trigger foods because when you have that category, all right, gosh, I know that fructans are hard for me. All right. I I struggled with garlic. So what does that mean? That means I'm probably going to struggle with grains too. But here's the thing. It was never meant to be elimination. Monash University, when they developed the low FODMAP diet, it was never meant to be, hey, let's permanently eliminate these foods. What it was, was it was supposed to be, let's empower the patient. Let's empower the patient with information so that they understand the strengths and weaknesses of their own gut. Because each one of us has strengths and weaknesses. I do, you do. There's a certain amount of garlic that you and I eat it all the time, right? So I typically don't have a problem with it. But if I eat enough of it, I'm going to feel like crap. Right? The same is true with beans. I can literally pile the beans on these days because I eat them all the time. But if I eat too much of them, I'm not going to feel so hot. So there's a point that exists for every single one of us with each one of these food categories where we can cross the line and overdo it. The problem is when you have damaged your gut microbiome, you have dysbiosis, you potentially have lost those guilds, those groups, the squads, the digestion squads that you need to basically break down these foods. Can you get them back? Yes, you can, but you have to reintroduce the foods. If you don't reintroduce the food, if you don't use it, you lose it. So so the low FODMAP diet, there's nothing wrong with that diet. It's how it's being applied. It's how it's being applied. And when people do this, so most people who do the low FODMAP diet, they restrict and they never reintroduce. And when you do that, you absolutely do damage to your gut microbiome. You absolutely are, are going to have loss of diversity and loss of the health promoting microbes. And one key point that I really want to make that I haven't yet on the low FODMAP diet is that it's so easy to vilify FODMAPs based on what even you and I are talking about right now. I'm, I'm telling people, your listeners at home, that these FODMAPs cause digestive distress. So it makes it sound like, gosh, why would I want those? You know why you want those? Because they're prebiotic. Those are the prebiotics. Fructans, galactans, and our beans, the same thing that causes digestive distress is the same thing that feeds and nourishes the healthy bacteria that live inside of you and is transformed into short-chain fatty acids. This is the money stuff. This so these are, these, are, these, are, these are the good guys, but if you have dysbiosis, you may have trouble digesting them until you correct that underlying bacterial balance. That's exactly correct. And there is an amount that exists, right? So I'm, I'm going to use lactose as an example. And obviously as a vegan, you wouldn't consume lactose, but let me use it as an example. If I take milk and I put it two drops on your tongue, are you going to have blowout diarrhea if you're lactose intolerant? No. There's an amount of lactose that you're capable of processing and you can train the gut. You can train the gut to get better and better, but you, the only way that you can train it to get better is to actually consume the food. So what you want is you want to consume the food in an amount that's moderate to the point that you don't actually cause yourself to feel unwell. Below that threshold. You below that threshold. But if you cross the threshold, the other thing to keep in mind is people will claim that it's inflammation. It's not inflammation. Your immune system has nothing to do with what's going on. You have to understand that when you feel that gas, bloating, digestive distress because you're consuming these foods and your gut is not designed for it because you have underlying dysbiosis, what you're, what you're actually doing is just sloppy digestion. It's sloppy digestion. You, you don't have the guild, the 
you know, digestive squad that you need to be able to break down that food yet the way that it should. And so you got to work on it by consuming these foods slowly over the course of time now. So to take a vegan diet and go low FODMAP, I would never actually recommend people go vegan low FODMAP for more than two at the most four weeks at a time. It's too restrictive of a diet and you're damaging your microbiome and you're impairing your ability to actually reintroduce those foods. And and I mean, potentially not getting all of the nutrition you need, right? That's exactly right. There's a, there's potentially, they, they have shown that it's a nutritionally inadequate diet, that there are specific things that jump out that um, you are not getting enough of. And it's again, because you're restricting yourself. So plant-based diversity is where the money is at. And when we drift away from that, you know, maybe it's in the interest of, these are well-intentioned people. It's in the interest of trying to feel better. And it's also this fear that's put out there that this is inflammation that you have. It's not inflammation. When we drift away from that, then we actually cause trouble. I mean, and and part of this sort of theoretical presentation speaks to her initially being influenced by other people online. It's very easy to, to find misinformation about these diets and about, you know, eating in a restrictive way. And it may on face value seem like a really healthy thing to do and that that person is thriving. So it almost in this situation feels like she, whilst has ended up being a big influencer in this theoretical presentation, at the start, she may have been influenced by someone else that was in her position. 100%. And look at, look at the way that this is playing out for her, where what she's putting out there publicly, this is, and this is the way it really works, right? No one's giving you the true pulse of what's going on in their life on Instagram. They're choosing to share what they want to share with you. So she's putting out there publicly that she's feeling okay on these things, right? She hasn't publicly even put out there that she's doing the low FODMAP diet or that she's struggling with her diet. She's not talking about that, but this is what's happening behind the scenes. And it's, and I can tell you, if you were in her shoes, this is a scary time for her because she's not that far removed from her eating disorder, from that hospitalization. And I mean, that well, the next step, it's, it seems like her thought process is around removing, remove, remove, remove. And the next step was this increasing fear of gluten. Right. And that was the next thing that was removed to the point where her, her diet became a low FODMAP, gluten-free vegan diet. Right. And so continue to go down this pathway of dietary restriction is we are, we are getting, you know, into a position where we're causing more and more damage to the microbiome. And we have, if you look at just take the gluten-free and isolate that, gluten-free diet has been clearly associated with damage to the gut microbiome. Now, so here we are, and it's 2019, and in the United States, about one in three people are either gluten-free or trying to be gluten-free. And the problem is that 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 number should be way less than that. It should not be 33% or 30%. Why is that happening? Why are people doing that? Yeah, why are people feeling like they need to avoid it? Is it a stigma? Hype. Yeah. Hype. So it's become very trendy to be gluten-free. The food industry has jumped on this trend, and there's also fad diets that are built on these concepts. So, I mean, it goes beyond the paleo diet. There's books that have come out that specifically vilified gluten. And basically, I mean, to be completely honest, kind of gave, gave the Western world or the modern world an eating disorder, you know, made people really, really scared. I mean, I have people that I've had conversations with who are very intelligent, well-informed people. 
and they're terrified of the idea of eating gluten because they're entirely fearful that this is going to cause autoimmune disease for them because that's what they've been reading that is going to cause autoimmune disease for them. And if you if you break it down and you look at gluten, the truth is that it, that the likelihood of developing autoimmune disease from gluten is very specific. It's a specific group of people, the people who develop celiac disease. And so who are these people that develop celiac disease? It's about 1% of Americans right now. I will admit that the, the trend is towards more people. There's more people. And why is that? Why are more people getting it? Is it a shift in genetics? No, it's not a shift in genetics. Here's the deal. There's three criteria that you need to meet in order to develop celiac disease. I think we talked about this the last episode, but we'll jump into it real quick right here. There's three criteria that you need to meet. Number one, you need to have the gene, but the gene is common. One in three people have the gene. If we had one more person in the room with us right now, then the odds would be that one of us would have it. So one in three people have the gene. Number two, you need to be exposed to gluten. And that is literally everyone in America. As everyone, I'm sure, in Australia and in the modern world, if you've had processed foods, then you have consumed gluten. It's in there. And number three, damage to the gut microbiome. So the microbiome through something called epigenetics is able to function and basically regulate in a very, very powerful way your own genetic code. So if you think about it, the wiring, which is your genetics behind the wall, remains the same. But the microbiome functions through epigenetics like a light switch. So that light switch is off for the person who has the gene until the microbiome flips it on. And now you have celiac disease and there's no turning back. And if you have celiac disease, then you are gluten-free for the rest of your life. And there's no, there's no, deb- there's no debate there. And so how, do you, how can you know whether or not you have celiac disease? Well, there's two main tests that I would basically consider doing. You could do the blood test for the genetics. If you have the gene for celiac disease, it doesn't mean that you have celiac disease. It just means it's possible. Believe it or not, 97% of people who have the gene for celiac disease never develop celiac disease. Okay, so it's still unlikely. But if you don't have the gene for celiac disease, then we're done. You don't have celiac disease. If you don't have the gene, you can't have the disease. But the, the follow-up is, is to do an, an upper endoscopy, which is a procedure where I run a light the size of my pinky finger down someone's throat. You can see, Simon, you can see my, my pinky. It's not that big. So <laughs> you run that light down someone's throat and while they're asleep, um, and you take biopsies from the small intestine and the biopsies will tell you whether or not they have celiac disease. So, and that's ultimately the gold standard test. So if you want to know whether or not someone has celiac disease, that's what you do. You do one of these tests to prove one way or the other. If they don't have celiac disease, then clearly, you know, they don't qualify in this autoimmune type condition. What they may have is something called um, gluten sensitivity, which frankly is kind of misnamed. So they call it gluten sensitivity. It should probably be called wheat sensitivity. So it's interesting, they did a study where basically what they did is they gave people, the same person would get one of three breakfast bars and they didn't tell them what was in the bar, okay? And they basically would do this bar for a week and they would measure what was going on with their gut. How do you feel, right? So the three bars were either that you had one with placebo, meaning there's nothing in there. You had one that had gluten in there. So if gluten is causing the problem, we're gonna find it. And then the third one had fructans. 
So remember, fructan is the category of FODMAP that we were talking about that exists in wheat, barley, rye, whole grains, right? Not bad. Again, not bad. Fructans are prebiotic, feed and nourish the healthy bacteria inside of us. They're good, but you would get one of these three things. And so here's what they found when they basically would, you know, take someone and say, okay, for a week, you're getting this bar. And then the next week you get a different bar. And then the week after that, you get the last one. And we're not telling you which is which. They found that the people that were eating the gluten bar, believe it or not, had even less symptoms than the people eating the placebo. Wow. You had more symptoms from a friggin' placebo <laughs> than you did from the gluten. All right. But what they did find is that the people who had symptoms were the ones consuming the fructans. So the fructans, the FODMAP, caused digestive distress. And the reason why is because these people have underlying dysbiosis. So we have this mislabeled diagnosis of gluten sensitivity, and it's not gluten sensitivity. It's a sensitivity to the FODMAP, the fructan, that's in gluten-containing foods. And the reason why you have a sensitivity to it is because you have damaged your gut microbiome, and your microbiome is struggling to process the food the way that it should. And so that's, so that's really what's going on in that particular situation. If you are someone who consumes gluten and has zero symptoms at all, you should be consuming gluten. You shouldn't be restricting your diet. You're damaging your microbiome when you go gluten-free and you have nothing to gain from it. If you are someone who has proven to not have celiac disease, yet you get digestive symptoms in isolation when you consume gluten, then basically that means you are one of these people that has wheat sensitivity as a result of the fructans. And you would treat that the same way that you would treat any of the other FODMAPs, which is what we were talking about. You ease into it. And you want diversity. And you want diversity. So you don't want to eliminate this from your diet. What you want to do is you want to ease your body. So, so just to, to really paint the picture, by eliminating the gluten, the downside of that, if you don't need to eliminate gluten, is that you're losing diversity in terms of the number of plants in your diet. The downside from a micro, from a purely microbiome perspective is that you are losing the diversity in your microbiome as a result of eliminating what is the dominant whole grain in the United States of America. Okay. But there's more to the story than that. You are losing the 14 minerals and the 10 vitamins that exist in wheat. You are also losing um, the protection that you get from whole grains, which really is driven through short chain fatty acids the protection that you get against heart disease. And they showed that people who are on a gluten-free diet have a higher risk of developing cardiac disease. That is the number one cause of death in the United States. So anytime we see something that protects us from heart disease, we should be paying attention. Whole grains, including wheat, protect us from heart disease. So we need to be very cautious if we're choosing to restrict on those particular things. Now, just to kind of tease this out a little bit further, though, like we were talking about before, like literally an hour ago, there's different types of carbs, right? There's different types of proteins, there's different types of fats, right? There's different types of gluten too. I don't want you to go eat white crackers, right? I don't want you eating the super processed, highly refined carbohydrates. I want you eating minimally processed to the greatest of your ability, whole grain wheat type products. And it's not going to be a dominant part of your diet. I don't want you to go out of your way to get more wheat products or more processed food into your diet. No, I'm just telling you that when you eliminate this food, you're causing damage to your microbiome. That's what I'm telling you. 
Okay, so at this point, this this girl has is doing the low FODMAP diet, gluten free, vegan, and she's unintentionally losing weight again. Her family's becoming concerned, and her no, her stress and and I can I can completely understand this. If you're in that position and you're restricting and restricting in hope of it getting better, but it's not, and you're getting worse and your symptoms are getting worse and you're 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 losing weight, your family's getting getting concerned. How important is the role of stress at this point in time in terms of the gut health? Well, it goes back to our earlier conversation about CRF. And that in times of stress, there is increased release of CRF. And CRF has been known to mediate increased visceral hypersensitivity. I can be basically saying that you could treat someone the exact same way. They could have the exact same thing going on inside of them. But because they're more sensitive, they feel it a lot more. All right. So basically what we have going on here is a storm that's picking up momentum and getting stronger where... She has restricted her diet. It is nutritionally inadequate. It is damaging her gut microbiome. And then in addition, she doesn't feel well because of her underlying functional GI disorder. And because she doesn't feel well, she is restricting her oral intake on what is already a restrictive diet, right? So there's probably a calorie deficit and a lack of energy there. It's calorically inadequate for her. So she's getting an inadequate number of calories on a restricted nutrient-poor diet. And then you layer on her history of an eating disorder. And what we have here is an extremely high level of complexity. This is not someone who should be managing themselves. This is not someone that their friends should be managing. This is a someone with very severe illness who could, could legitimately make themselves sick. And this is not an exaggeration when I say this, that the number one most deadly psychiatric illness is anorexia. More than any other psychiatric illness, there's a death rate literally above 5%. One in 20 people who have this condition are going to die because of what happens to their body. So this is not something that it should not be on display on the internet. This is someone that really needs serious clinical help. Um, and most likely of the inpatient variety because it's reached a point of acuity where I don't know that you can get it under control with outpatient visits. I think that she probably needs to be in the inpatient eating disorder unit at this point. And then the, the next step from here was the reintroduction of various animal products into the diet. So she started with eggs and then bone broth and then was feeling better and, and stress was dropping because of that and eventually added in salmon. Now, what do you make of that? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing from my perspective is that she is liberalizing her diet to some degree, and that is a good thing. Now, do I think that long-term animal products are good for her? No. But part of the motivation that you have to understand is the safety that people feel in returning back to these diets, right? It's like a baby blanket. So if you grew up eating a certain way, then there is this safety that you feel, even if it's an unhealthy diet, there is a safety that you feel because you know what it is and how it's going to work for you. 
And that's the reason why that's frankly an advantage that the food industry has against us is if we're trying to change the way that people eat, it's actually very easy for them to reinforce the status quo by freaking us out. You know, all you got to do is say, oh my gosh, this diet's bad for you and it's going to hurt you. And create confusion. Create confusion. And when you create confusion, the status quo reigns, reigns supreme and it stays intact. And so, and I think that there's a little bit of that going on here where basically she's become fearful of her diet. She has underlying issues, her eating disorder, her constipation or functional GI disorder, irritable bowel syndrome. She's struggling to process her food. And, and at the same time, what she's seeing on the internet is this backlash against veganism where people are saying, oh, veganism destroyed my life. It destroyed my health. And therefore we're, we're all hitting the eject button and going back to our standard American diet. But I think they're failing to understand the complexity like you're talking about, the complexity of the issue and, you know, moving from a point of severe restriction to adding in these animal products, which are quite calorie dense, that would make sense that she would feel better, right? Well, because she was in a caloric deficit like we were talking about. So she, so what she's adding in are calorie dense, nutritionally poor foods. So she's helping to address the, the calorie deficit that she had before. And the second issue is that she is not in a position where her gut, which has been damaged and has been struggling, she's not testing it with these foods anymore. So basically she's removing plant foods and replacing them with animal products. And frankly, that that is easier for someone to digest. So it's a type of another form of elimination diet, essentially. Right. So she's reintroducing these foods and she I, I truly believe that part of the reason why she's feeling better is because she is making up the calorie deficit that she had when she was on such an, a severe restrictive diet because she's ill. So just to clarify, this girl has had a long history of, of what could be IBS and then restrictive eating and has reintroduced animal products and at that point in time has felt a bit better. You've just spoken to the fact that that is most probably due to calories. If someone else is listening and has IBS, would you be recommending that they reintroduce animal products like this girl has done? No, I I don't think that I would actually recommend making that move because at the end of the day, what we want is to correct the dysbiosis, right? If we can correct the dysbiosis, then we ultimately will move her in the right direction in terms of her getting better and addressing these issues. That's at the root of this is the dysbiosis. And the problem is that these animal products, we know very clearly the, the process of creating dysbiosis, damage to the gut bacteria, increased intestinal permeability, release of bacterial endotoxin, those three steps, all three steps have been associated with saturated fat from animal products, all three steps. So if we're trying to get her better, yes, by like basically taking the carbs out and replacing them with animal products, you are making it a little bit easier on her gut on a temporary basis, but you're not helping the problem. You're actually feeding into the problem, which is now you're trying to correct dysbiosis and overcome the food that she's now eating, right? So it's a bit of a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid and it's not helping us in our cause of what we ultimately want to do. Now, does that mean that I think that she needs to just, you know, tough it out and jump back into some sort of variety of the vegan diet? What I would say is this, we need to start by addressing the underlying medical conditions that are here. We need to fix the constipation immediately. 
You can't change your diet and start reintroducing foods and expecting to feel well if you have underlying severe constipation. So let's address that issue immediately. And let's also look at addressing the eating disorder. And then let's start to reintroduce these foods and recognizing that we want to go slow when we reintroduce these fiber and these FODMAPs. So we don't want to go too crazy, but we do want to start to reintroduce these foods. That's what I would do. Because then what you're doing is you're ultimately sort of challenging yourself without crossing that line where you cause those symptoms, but you're producing the short-chain fatty acids that you need to actually heal the underlying dysbiosis, to get the right bacteria, to repair the intestinal permeability, and to reduce the bacterial endotoxin release. That's really where we want to be. So just to really drive this one home, if someone else has IBS, but perhaps doesn't have all of the complexity that this girl has in terms of her history and eating disorder and whatnot, there would be other things to be explored before looking to add animal products back into the diet. Oh, 110%. And to me, a big part of that is working with a well-trained medical doctor to address the IBS. Okay. So for this girl, if she was your patient and you were sitting down with her, where would you want to see her take her nutrition from here? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing is that let's, let's first take a step back and look at how we got here, right? What's the path that led us to where we are today? The path was through someone who has underlying dysbiosis, develops an eating disorder, which we know makes the underlying dysbiosis even worse. This is a vulnerable person who just happens to have a very public persona that they're putting out there. And they are now playing with their diet and they're doing things based upon what is trendy or what they're seeing their friends do, not based upon a doctor's recommendation. This is someone who really should be cautious with their food and their dietary choices because of their history of an eating disorder, really should be probably following a diet that's recommended by their physician and in close contact with a physician throughout this entire process. I don't know that a doctor would recommend the path that was taken here. And it's through the dietary restriction that we ended up in this place of challenge. It's through this dietary restriction, which was motivated by what was trendy and what we were seeing our friends do on the internet. And so now here we are and we're picking up the pieces and we want her well. That's what we care about. At the end of the day, that's all we care about is we want her well. And I know long-term that this diet is not, meaning the reintroduction of animal products is not the right diet for her, right? I know long-term that this is going to promote more disease. It's going to promote dysbiosis. It's not going to actually help her to heal her gut. It's not, there's no evidence to suggest that. So I ultimately want to get her moving back towards the plant-based diet. I do think that we have to be gentle in how we do this, considering what she just went through. But from my perspective, the approach approach that I would take is that we start to slowly, over the course of time, reintroduce dietary diversity. When she originally went on the vegan diet, she actually did pretty well because she wasn't restricting herself. So we need to move towards reintroduction of these foods. We need, to be make, we need to get her back to a place where she's able to tolerate these different FODMAPs, where she's able to tolerate fiber. And over the course of time, we're going to work back towards where we were before, which is a plant-based diet. But to me, this is about we need to get her right. Um, so it's, it goes beyond dietary recommendations from my perspective. This is a complicated patient. This is a complicated patient that we need to be controlling her constipation, most likely with medication. 
And this is someone who I would be absolutely adamant that she is followed up with a, a adequately trained health professional for her eating disorder. And we need to have that on board. We need to make sure that we're adequately controlling that. And frankly, we may need medication to help with what's going on from a psychiatric perspective. So I think that there's multiple layers of complexity that here, you know, we can't step back and act like diet is this silver bullet. I wish I could say that it is, honestly. I wish I could say that it is. Diet helps so much. It helps so much, but it is not a cure-all. And this is someone who needs healthcare. She needs help. She needs us to peel back these layers. I'll work on the GI issue. Let me get someone from the psych perspective to help out with the eating disorder. Let's get a good nutritionist on board and we're going to start to work on this diet. And we can get her back to that place, but I'm not putting a timeline on it. All right. We're not doing it in two weeks or four weeks. We're doing it when it feels right. And we're just going to work towards a holistic, really holistic approach. 100%. Now sort of that we've gone through this almost case study, right? It must be incredibly frustrating for you and other other doctors, physicians, gastroenterologists that see such stories pop up on on YouTube and 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 the I guess lack of medical advice sometimes being given out to people. Right. Yeah, I mean that truly is what motivated me to start to put myself out there. Um, you know, when you look at the internet and you see that the conversation is being dominated by people that I, I look at what is being put out there and I go, what are we talking about? This is insane. What are we doing here? And so that's really the position that I was coming from when I started my account. And it's really just to share this information. And so that people could have a, um, credible source that they could go to. So it's the same reason that you started your podcast and you do all these interviews with people around the world is that you just want people to have a credible source of information that they can lean on because they're well-intentioned people. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, mate, they just want to be better. It's been an absolute pleasure going through this with you today. And I can't wait for your book to come out. When, when does it look like the book will launch? I should have more information, hopefully pretty soon. I just turned in the first draft to my my editor this week. And, you know, what we've been talking about is early 2020, but I, I you know, I think the details all need to be worked out on that. And you don't really set a date from our perspective. We wouldn't set a date until the book is in final form. And so we're getting close. Okay. Yeah. I can't wait to share with people, man. I'm so excited about this book. It's there, frankly, a lot of these topics that you and I have been talking about today, there's a deeper dive that I do in the book because I can, I can give you the full spectrum of conversation, including the references, including the studies and including the high level detail that you and I were, we're, we're trying our best here to cover something in two hours, but the book is like literally me and for six months in Starbucks hacking away, giving you everything <laughs> I got. <laughs> I can't wait. Let's go get some lunch. All right, man. We're going to go to uh, organic grill. Oh, sounds great. Friends, here we go. Wow. You can always count on Dr. B for those knowledge bombs. That's for sure. I hope you got something out of today. I sure did. I think the main thing is understanding that no diet is bulletproof. But if you do add animal products back in and feel better, it's not necessarily the animal product, but more likely the removal of a trigger. Long term, the science shows a diverse plant-based diet is the best for promoting diversity in your healthy gut flora. 
And as Dr. B kept saying, that's so important for the production of those super healthy bacteria byproducts like butyrate. If you learned something today, we would love to hear from you. Share your thoughts on Instagram and tag myself at plant underscore proof and Dr. B at the gut health MD. Keep your eyes peeled over the coming eight weeks for another two episodes with Dr. B where we do in-depth Q&As, questions that the Plant Proof community, you guys, sent me. That's it for today's episode. I'll catch you next week.